And he writes to the church wanting them to be so clear about the saving, powerful grace of God. And so in the first few chapters there, it speaks about what God has done and who we as sinners are in Jesus Christ. And then the last half from 4, 5, and 6, chapters 4, 5, and 6 there, he speaks about all the various implications for us as the people of God. And today we find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. The main point from today's sermon is that in Christ there is power to overcome the deepest hostilities and divisions of man. In Christ, there is power to overcome the deepest hostilities and divisions of man. Let's look there at 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In our passage today, and really in the entire chapter 2 here, we see that there is no division that cannot be overcome by the power of Christ. His grace goes deep, as we saw before. Deep to the sinful heart and forgives and reconciles. But not only does grace go deep, His grace goes wide, bringing about supernatural reconciliation amongst his people. And let's go ahead and see this as we look at alienation, how we are brought from alienation to reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Let's look first at alienation. If you're taking notes, this is our first point, from alienation. Recently, some of us, uh, my family, the Ings and the Chens, We went to the California Science Center to see the exhibit of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Old Testament documents that date way back before uh, even A.D. began. And they showed other artifacts relating to biblical times. And at the end of the exhibit, after you sort of weave through the whole entire thing, they had this real-time live video feed of the Jerusalem Temple. Specifically, the Western Wall, which has been uh, basically a very, very, very significant place of prayer for the Jews for centuries. Live video feed of the Temple of Jerusalem. That's pretty cool. I mean, you don't have to be a Jew or, or a Christian or even a Muslim to appreciate what's going on there. I mean, given the history of the Temple or the Temple Mount... 
given that the apostles walked in the area, just as you know, let's just say historical fact, given that Jesus himself walked in the area, right? There's some pretty cool history. But not all of the history of the temple is cool. In the first century, to the non-Jew, the temple was a sign actually of hostility and division. I say hostility because the temple that King Herod had built, which eventually was destroyed and another temple was rebuilt, uh, the temple that the King Herod built was architecturally designed to forever draw a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, that is non-Jews. And from what I understand, that's all of us here as Gentiles. So let me speak about some architectural facts uh, for those of you who might be interested. The temple was surrounded by courts. So you had the temple in the middle, and then you had these various courts that kind of expanded outward and surrounded uh, the, the temple there. The innermost court was called the Temple of Priests, and only priests could go in that place. Uh, the next one, the next out was the Court of Israel, so any male Jew could enter into that court. And then after this, there was the Court of Women, which any Jew could enter, and it was called the Court of Women because it was as far as the women could go in that hierarchical structure there, that culture. These were all, these courts were all for the Jews. One, comment, one commentator describes it and says, these courtyards were all on the same level. So although there were great differences between the courts, they were not as great as the monumental division that came next. The division was a dividing wall that separated the Jewish courts from the Gentile court. The Gentiles didn't have same access as all the other Jews did. In fact, the Gentile court was on an entirely different level, downward, and it surrounded the Jewish court. So you can just imagine if we all were to go to the, the, the temple there, to the Jewish, sorry, the Gentile courts, we would be in the Gentile court, and we might see the Jews walking through our court, and then up nine stairs to where there was a platform, and then up an additional five steps, and then eventually they get to the court of all the Jews. We're looking at these things looking at them ascend to a place which we could never go. And warning us forever were the inscriptions on stone which stated that Gentile trespassing was punishable by death. The Israelites, in their sin, were very hostile to the Gentiles. And no doubt the Gentiles were hostile to the Israelites as well, which is clear from history. But Israel's hostility came about towards all of the others, because though they were adopted according to God's grace, Israel had sinfully shifted their loyalty from God, the God of, his, of grace, and instead they put it in their own nationalistic identity. So that there's a shifting of loyalty there, a shifting of love. Their national identity by God, God said, I want you guys to be a holy people for the fame of my great name. Right? They were supposed to be, the Jews were supposed to be, a light to the world. But instead, they used their nationalistic identity to curse the world. In their sins, the Israelites reviled the non-Jews. They lumped them in together with like the dogs of society. Dirty animals. And the Jews were deeply guilty of their prideful nationalism and their self-righteousness. And so the Gentiles were socially alienated by the Jews. Socially alienated by the Jews. No doubt there were specific laws that God had given 
to make Israel distinct, and there were many of them. And they were supposed to be separate from the Gentiles, but God, without doubt, this is something we, you should underscore here, God did not uh, instill hostility into the Old Testament law, or hostility was not inherent in the Old Testament law. Rather, hostility was occasioned by the law. Hostility ensued from the law because of their own sinful hearts. The problem was with the people, not because of the law itself. Unfortunately, it was the sinful hearts of men that twisted God's law and even used it as a tool to fuel their self-righteousness and pride. This is part of right there why it says there in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the, hands, in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated They're cut off there, as it says. But despite the Jews' sins, the Jews possessed enormous privilege, enormous privilege, all by God's grace, enormous privilege that they themselves were blind to, at least its true meaning, and which the Gentiles on the whole were largely uh, alienated to. They didn't have access to. And so they were spiritually alienated, so to speak. Take election, for example. God in the Old Testament had elected the nation of Israel by his grace. And even before the nation even existed, God, uh, in his grace, approached Abraham of all people. Even though he was a sinful person, he was a pagan, he was not a worshiper of God. And, and God drew near to this man despite his own sin. Even though all people had sinned against God by not wanting to live under his rule, God, you see, draws near to one. In his grace, he moves forward in history to save. He finds Abraham, and his grace is promised to Abraham that he would have many descendants. His people were going to inherit the land, and then one from his blessing would be, oh sorry, one from his line would be a blessing to all of the world's nations. Eventually, the people of Israel are born. They come about through the line of Abraham, and it was they that possessed these promises. It was they that possessed the covenants, not any other nation. Again, all by God's grace. So that's election. You can you think about uh, the law. God had given the law to Israel, and that was a privilege because there he's teaching the people how to order themselves and live in a, in a manner that glorifies God. It was to Israel that God had given the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, the prophecies, the writings that, that eventually came to be known as the Old Testament. And then think about God's personal presence. So not only did God reveal himself to his people through the law, but he also said, I give myself to you. And so the temple, and then before the temple was built, you had the tabernacle, you had the tent. Before, if you wanted to meet God, that's where you go. You see the glory of God. You get to worship God and you go to the temple to do that. And there God had promised Israel his presence. And it's really important to remember that in all these things, God promises them by his grace. It wasn't because Israel was more superior than all of the others. It wasn't because they were stronger or larger or the most intelligent. It was simply because God gave his grace to them. So you see in Romans chapter 9, Paul says there, speaking about all these privileges that God in his grace had bestowed upon Israel. He says there, they are the Israelites. 
And here Paul's, Paul's desire is that he minister the gospel to them. He says, he says they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. How cool is that? That Jesus comes from the lineage of the Jews. And also, though not children of Jesus, Jews come from the lineage of Jesus in some ways. I mean, there are many today, none of us, who come from the tribe of Judah. Right? I mean, how cool is that? Just, just as a physical fact to say, I come from the same lineage of Jesus. How fun would it be to say, I come from the lineage of the patriarchs of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Those are all privileges that only Israel had. But for the Gentiles, that is our forefathers, all of us here today, if you are not a Jew, they knew nothing of this. And they were not only socially alienated by the Jews, but they were spiritually alienated from the promises given to the Jews. And that's, there you see there, starting in verse 12, you see five ways in which they are spiritually alienated. The Gentiles were without the promise given to Israel's patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So without them, they are separated from Christ, as Christ is the one who would go on to bless the nations from Abraham's line. Being outside of Israel, they were alienated from the commonwealth, or basically alienated from the citizenship of Israel. And they were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no privileges. God did not choose to make his covenant with them. It was not their physical forefathers that God made his promises to. It was Israel. And so they had no hope, and they were without God in the world. It's helpful, too, to underscore one reason why they were, the main reason why they were spiritually alien is because they were in their sin. And, and that's mentioned there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you are a non-Jew, let me speak to you. It's tempting to think, hey, it's not fair. Why are the Gentiles without hope in the world for thousands of years? But instead God gives the hope to the Jews? You know, what's up with that? It's interesting that, there's that, that is a sense of entitlement to God's blessing. There we feel, if you have any thought of that, which I sometimes do, that's a sense of entitlement to God's blessings. And it's so funny how we are so quick to demand so-called fairness, whatever that means, when it comes to God's blessings. But then when it comes to God's judgment, we have no desire that God would be fair. But yet we have to remember that it is under God's judgment that all people find themselves apart from the grace of God. We just read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. All people are the children of disobedience, sons of disobedience. And like all mankind, all people are children of wrath. So you see how all the privileges God gives to Israel are at the hand of God's grace. It's like all men, mankind are heading downward in their sin. And yet God, by his grace and for his glory, chooses to save 
some, to set his love, his steadfast love upon some, and even to elect some. And apart from God's saving grace, we are all without hope and without God in the world, including the Jews who rejected Jesus. And there were many. In their sinful nationalistic pride, they took the blessings of God in the law and even the very symbols of his divine grace in circumcision and looked down upon others. So circumcision, if you're not familiar with that, was Israel's God-given covenant sign that God would be faithful to all of his promises. Right? Abraham was going to have lots of offspring. A nation was going to be built on him. One from his line will be a blessing. So... As one commentator put it, you know, it's fairly obvious they're supposed to look down and remember that God alone is going to make a people holy for the Lord. But these people, they use the symbols of grace even as some sort of uh, fuel for their pride. As the circumcision, they would self-righteously and derisively call all the others, the Gentiles, the uncircumcision. As history shows, though God had given the Israelites the law, the covenants, they didn't much care for the God of the law and the covenants. Non-Christian friend, what do you make of the Bible's claim that if you do not know Christ, you are without hope, without God in the world? It's a striking claim, isn't it? And the Bible's not saying that you cannot have any hope as in any earthly aspirations. That's not what he's saying at all. You can have lots of those types of hopes. But the passage is saying that one who doesn't know Jesus has no eternal hope because one doesn't know God. One doesn't have God. You know, in my opinion, for the Bible to make such a drastic claim means either the Bible is complete, the Bible's claims are complete idiocy, or there's something to it. As in, it is true. And there's one way to find out for yourself. And that's to study it yourself. Investigate it yourself. And so if you want to, we can, we can do these studies with you to examine the claims of Jesus that he himself made about himself in order to see what is this. Is this complete? Is he or is this true? We examine these claims and we, these are the claims that we preach. These are the claims that Paul the Apostle who wrote this book preach. Or preached, and we do this study called Christianity Explained in six one hour sessions, more or less. And if you're interested in doing that, we'd be happy to do that. I'd be happy to schedule the opportunity for you to study the claims of Christ according to his word. Well, that is the plight of the Gentiles, alienated, socially alienated by the very ones who were to be the light to the nations, and then spiritually alienated ultimately because of their sin. They were estranged from God. But as they were on the outside, as they were cut off and even hostile towards God, how then did they get to the inside? Because, I mean, Paul's actually, he's writing to Christian, right? And this, this church here, they were a largely Gentile church. They were Gentile believers. So how do they go from the outside and get into the inside? And this brings us to the second point, reconciliation in Christ. They went from alienation, that is us, we went from alienation, into or to reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Look there in verses 13 to 18. This is the section that we come to next. This section actually uh, parallels what Paul had written earlier in verses 1 to 10. So if you look over there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and just kind of skim it, 
You see there that Paul writes about the depth of God's grace to save. Verse 1, but you were dead in your sins. The dungeon of depravity, as we talked about earlier. Verse 4, but God made us alive in Christ. And he raised us and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. Here in our passage today, Paul does the same thing. With an emphasis, though, on the breadth of God's grace. There in 1 to 10 is the depth of God's grace. All the way down into the dungeon. And he seats us all the way up in the heavenly places. But here, the, the breadth of God's grace is emphasized there. Verses 11 and 12, it says, You Gentiles, you Gentiles were separated and alienated. And then in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So 1 to 10, you see those who were so low were brought high. Here in verses 11 to 22, those who were far off are brought near. Reconciliation. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you got depths and heights in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Here you got breadth and width in 11 to 22. It's God's grace reconciles sinners to himself and then to other people. So the way I look at the way I, I look about it in relation to 11 to 22 is imagine, you know, taking a big bucket of water and dumping it into another container. It's not that the, all that water just comes straight down and hits the bottom. That's not only what, what it does. But when it hits the bottom, it moves outward toward the very edges of whatever that container is. And here we see, according to God's divine plan, God pours his grace down from the heavenly places down to sinful men and then out to the very outskirts of whatever the container is that is his whole entire world. All of the nations then receive this grace for those who repent and believe. This is something that he wants you, Gentile, you non-Jew, to look there in verse 11. Remember, Remember, it was not always the case that you were near, but at one point in time, you were far, you were cut off. And in your sin, you were under the judgment of God. How do you get inside? He says there that we are brought near through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ. This is not, nothing less than God wrought reconciliation. Nothing else that can affect this reconciliation apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. If you think about it, the people on the outside were languishing. You were languishing because of our sin. Which also includes unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus. But what brings them inside into the realm of res restoration? What is the ambulance to bring the suffering into the realm of peace? Is the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Christ brings people from hostility into the realm of peace, such that peace was to mark relationships with one another and then especially 
in our relationship with God. So you got the horizontal, you also got the vertical here. All of that marked by peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. This grace goes all the way down and then it goes all the way out. And then so what Paul does here in our verses, it's like he goes all the way out and he helps us see that in Jesus, he brings people to himself. He's uniting people to himself and then he unites people to God. Not, don't think logical time, or sorry, don't think time as in a chronological sequence here. Think just everything happens all at once. But yet in his grace, people are brought near to him and together and then brought before him. We see the two purpose statements there in verses 15 and 16. It explains the work of Christ, what he did there, to make one new man in the place of two and to reconcile both to God, to make one new man where there was two previously and then to reconcile them both to God. And all this through the blood of Christ in verse 13 and then there in verse 16, through the cross. Did you notice there that peace... Is what Jesus is. Peace is what Jesus is there in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Isn't it ironic? That peace between men. And peace between God and men. Is brought through the spilling of Jesus Christ's blood. But that's the whole point of the Bible isn't it? That this peace is only made possible. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through his atoning work. As he spills his blood, bears the wrath that men deserved in order that we would be free. The condemnation that was once upon us, now we are free from because of his blood, because of his cross. Therefore, Christ is our peace. You know, this has connection to the Old Testament, uh, which spoke of the fact that one or that spoke of the one to come as the prince of peace in Isaiah chapter nine. And then it's, it is Isaiah 57 that Paul quotes there in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. He is the one who sees man's frailty and sin. But yet comfort bringing peace. Peace between men. Peace between God and men. And you know how he is bringing this peace between hostile peoples there? Look there. It says that he does this by fulfilling the law. Fulfilling the law. He does, he does this, he brings peace by enabling them to love and forgive as they could not do it on their own. I mean, think about the Jews, right? They possess the very covenants. They possess the very law of God, all of the Old Testament law, but yet they fail to accomplish it. Jesus said the entire law could be summarized in the two great commandments to love God and love one another. Love their neighbor. But they couldn't do it because they were powerless to do it. But see, friends, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law was designed actually to expose sin and reveal to man what they lacked. Right? They lacked saving ability. They lacked righteousness before a righteous God. And God designed it that way in order to show them who they needed. The Lord. The Savior. The Righteous One who alone could be the sacrifice of atonement. So Christ in his grace and in his kindness, Christ himself fulfills the law and all of its demands. And so Christ sets it aside. He nullifies it. It's not that he disregards it, but he nullifies it. He brings it to nothing. So a helpful passage we could compare to is Hebrews chapter 8. Go ahead and turn over there to the book of Hebrews. We turn right. 
in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. We're going to start from 8.8. In this passage, the writer speaks about how God's people were powerless, powerless because of their sin, to fulfill God's law. But, how Christ and the new covenant in His blood are far superior than anything of the old covenant. Look there in verse 8. For He finds fault with them, that is the people with the law. When He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, that is the Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament law, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So you see there what brings about this peace, The ability there to carry out the commands is not their own works, but the grace of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Now, some people think that what he's talking about there is the actual dividing wall between the Gentiles and the Jews. Um, It seems better to note the parallelism in the verse, the breaking down of the dividing wall is parallel with the abolishing of the law of commandments. So it's better to see that this dividing wall is the old covenant, the law, its commandments expressed in the ordinances. Without doubt, the Jews took it and used it in sinful ways. But with the old covenant gone and the new covenant begun, he pours his spirit into his people and causes them to walk in his commands. And so if you look there in verse 18 of Ephesians, chapter 2. You see this talk about the Spirit. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. This is the Spirit that causes us to walk in His commands. There is, we now have access to God by His Spirit, right? Forget doing the law by the flesh, as the Jews understood you know, circumcision, as they called, as they knew, thought of themselves, the uncircumcision, that was done in the flesh. Here, Paul is going to contrast, or he does contrast, the true, powerful nature of the gospel. That is, power in the spirit. Here, we need the spirit of God as a mark of the new covenant. Jesus Christ here deals with our failures by succeeding himself to fulfill the law. And so he abolishes it. Uh, but according to the passage... Christ does not only bring reconciliation between men, verse 15, he also brings reconciliation to God, verse 16, and he says, to reconcile us both. Now, Paul is a Jew when he's writing to Gentiles, so how awesome is it here that he is picturing very much the new humanity? He says that Jesus Christ died on the cross to reconcile us both to God 
both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The Old Testament required blood sacrifices for sin, and once a year the Jews uh, would have the Day of Atonement, the Sacrifice of Atonement in Leviticus 16. But for the whole time that the Jews sacrificed animals, Hebrews 10 says that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And that was by God's design. What was needed was a true sacrifice, one whose blood could actually take away the sins of the people and bear the eternal wrath for sin. This was Christ, who through his cross killed the hostility between God and men. As Colossians 1.21 reads, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So in Christ, God's grace goes all the way down, drawing people to himself, uniting them in one body, and then bringing them before God in the power of the Spirit. So there's the Trinity at work there. The Trinity at work. This reconciliation between God's people and then between God and this new humanity comes about all again through the blood of Christ and through Christ's cross. And that was God's plan all along. So if you look back at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, this God is making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So you Gentiles, you non-Jews, you realize that Christ was sent at the right time to win for his people what you could not win for yourselves under the law, that is salvation. You realize that Jesus Christ was sent at the right time to do for you what you could not do for yourselves under the law, that is, earn righteousness. And then in uniting all things to himself, he reconciles the far and the near and makes them into one new man, a new humanity. Thus Christ is our peace, bringing restoration on the horizontal plane, this plane, and then bringing restoration to the vertical plane. What a powerful thing to possess reconciliation in Christ. We Christians are marked by a supernatural peace. The supernatural peace of Jesus Christ. Where he dies on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to God. And he changes our hearts by his spirit in order that we would love God and love one another. That we would fulfill the law by his grace. So you realize, First Baptist, First Baptist, you realize that in our church and in every gospel preaching church and gospel believing church, what is needed to bring and keep unity is nothing less than the, the divine power of the gospel. I mean, that is truly amazing if we really understand that what was in our hearts was hostility. So, for example, growing up, because of various circumstances, prejudice, discrimination, uh, you know, people making fun, things like that, I had a strong loathing for Caucasians. Is a confession here. I'm not proud of it. it. It's very sinful. And so, for me, you know, the the quintessential, at least in my mind, growing up closer to the coast, the quintessential white boy was the surfer with the blonde hair. And um, 
This led me toward to forming a certain hostility in response to their hostility. And I knew that that was in my heart, and I knew that it was so hard to get rid of. And this hostility was just multiplied to all sorts of different people. But then in the gospel, something changed. When I come to understood that, oh, wow, you know what? I am hostile. I am hostile myself. Not just people out there. I am hostile myself to God. But yet in the gospel, God reconciles me to him. So what then does that mean for me and then other people? The people that I loathe, the people that have committed sins against me. Can the gospel cover over those divisions of men? It's interesting, by God's grace, he did this work in my heart where I came to know my own sinfulness first and began to confess that sinfulness to God and deal with all of that loathing and hostility towards other people. It's then that I began to love other people with the gospel. And, and in our church even, so there was this one brother who was a dear brother whom I loved and many of you guys know. He was the quintessential West Coast white boy, at least in my mind. You know, at age 12, he was a professional surfer. He was sponsored. He was a member of this church. Um, not anymore because he moved back down to uh, the coast. And uh, that was very much his life. He was the surfer dude. But man, he had such a godliness that I so appreciated. And so what I was able to recognize was this brother's love towards us and Christ's very nature in himself. And that's what caused me to love him. I saw a holiness that was represented in him that was from Jesus Christ and I loved him. I mean, forget about all the other circumstantial stuff of what the man's hobbies were, what the guy actually looked like. This dude was born again in Jesus Christ. He had a new heart. He had Jesus Christ's spirit. And so there was unity where before there was once hostility. And if, you, if you're visiting with us, you can go ahead and talk to other people too and find out who it is that they loathed. I mean, in our small group, there were people confessing and talking about other people that they did not like in this church. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of his blood that forgives them and reconciles them to God, they then are able to seek peace and unity with others. So you realize, friends, that what exists apart from Christ between us is hostility in our very nature. So then you realize that what has brought us 50 or so people together is the supernatural power of the gospel. How do people overcome centuries-old hatred for other people? It's through the gospel love of Jesus Christ, who, though we were hostile towards him, still dies for us. War is not the answer, but loving self-sacrifice by laying down our lives for others. You see the irony there again? Christ wins peace for us by embracing all the hostility of men. And loving even his enemies. And so he calls us to walk in those very same ways. Matthew 5.14 reads, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do Christians overcome the tendency to passivity and not reach out to others? So that's some of us who might be tempted to not reach out to others, to be passive and just sort of leave them on the wayside, leave them on the outside. The gospel love of Jesus Christ. 
He who gave up all comfort and all glory and all position in order to pursue ones that had no mind, no care, not a thought of the world for him. How do we as Christians in First Baptist Church overcome our instinct to write people off because they are simply annoying or different or loud, too quiet, their breath smells funny, they got a different way of doing things, they come from a different cultural background, maybe they're a little bit socially awkward, maybe they're a little bit too socially adept. It's by having our love adjusted to the frequency of Christ's love, isn't it? Those people that who, who those people that we are tempted to write off, those people are loved by God. So much so that God sends his son to experience all the hostility in the world to gather them to the Father's bosom. They are precious in his sight, loved by the Father. And Christ gathers them into this fold. You see, friends, that every temptation that you guys have, you should be thinking right now of somebody I don't want to reach out to, somebody I don't want to forgive, somebody I don't want to seek gospel reconciliation with. You think every single one of those temptations to disregard, to look down upon, you should see them as an opportunity for the power of the gospel to be made known once again. For gospel peace to be made known through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his cross. And there we fight for true gospel unity. So all of these opportunities, every disagreement you are having right now, every opportunity for reconciliation you need to take, some forgiveness you need to give. Some forgiveness you need to ask for. Some sin you may need to lovingly confront. Some irritation you need to overlook. It is a canvas for the masterpiece of the peace of Christ. So where the world would tell you, you Christians ought to cut ties, you ought to harbor bitterness and grudges, you ought to do what is easiest and most convenient, Christ and his gospel tells us to love, to forgive, and seek unification, unity, because God himself empowers us and gives us the wonderful example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, friends, if Christ's love in the gospel is what compels us to love even those who sin against us, then indeed we would be a community to the praise of his glorious grace. Indeed, we would be a community where the gospel of Jesus Christ is magnified and reconciliation is sought again and again and again. Friends, the reconciling power of the cross is powerfully displayed to the watching world when what could divide us is everything, everything. But what in fact unites us is the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you look around here, the large majority of us, or 50% of us, might look the same, but man, there's a whole lot of stuff that could divide us. Hispanics, Asians, even amongst the Asians, there have been uh, divides so deep, such hostility from one group to another, even among others here. The Spanish speakers, the Hispanics, there are divisions that go back centuries. 
Those are all opportunities that could divide us. But yet again, we see every opportunity, every temptation for division and opportunity where the peace of Christ would shine brightly. And this is really what we have been invited and called and commanded to do, is seek this unity as one family, as one body in this new humanity. So as we go from alienation to reconciliation in Jesus Christ, we now are reminded of our adoption. Point number three, we are reminded of our adoption. We go from alienation to reconciliation in Jesus Christ, and we are reminded of our adoption. Look there in 19 to 22. So then, here he has this conclusion, right? All of the implications of what he's been speaking about before. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, being built together, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's speaking here of the great privilege that is now ours in Jesus Christ, whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile. Thinking of privilege, or at least potential privilege, I remember when we were in Dubai, we had this opportunity to visit a palace of one of the royal rulers. And uh, we were friends with uh, one of the royal ruler's longtime employees, and the ruler was on vacation, so our friend invited us for a tour. And it's a, it's a very special privilege in our book. I mean, we took pictures and everything, and our children were very little. We were flipping through his family albums and doing all things. You never, never really knew if that was like okay. You know, at any given time, this ruler could, could show up. And people, you know, who were on the premises were kind of giving us funny looks like, okay, you guys, should you guys actually be here? Um, it was pretty amazing. You know, so first we toured the horse stables because our friend, he looked after all these horses. And then after that, we pulled up onto a street and we pulled up to the entryway to the palace. And on the left side stood this magnificent, this monstrous building that was like tens of thousands of square feet. That was for the mom. And then on the right side, we come to this very beautifully designed building. And that was his building, and we got this tour, right? Tour of his room, seeing all of his pets, his falcons, his fish, uh, all of the family things. And it was amazing to be there. But again, we never really knew if we ought to be there. We were not invited by the owner. At least in my mind, I was always wondering, you know, is is, is the ruler going to come back? We had no right to be there. It was a strange experience of awe. It was the awe of a visitor. An awe of a visitor. But friends, when we enter into God's house through Jesus Christ, we don't come as tentative visitors. Should I do this? Should I do that? Through Christ we come into God's kingdom as God's children. And the awe we experience is not the awe of a visitor, but the awe of an heir. Where God leads us through the house and he says, you have equal share to everything I have here. The riches of my grace that everybody else has. I give it to you. It's an amazing place where all in his household would not have suspicious stares, but welcoming shouts of gladness that the Father has yet again brought into the house another one. So there in verse 19, we are members of the household of God. 
Or then using national language, he says, fellow citizens with the holy ones, the saints. So now anyone, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the culture, no matter male or female or social position, can have permanent access and position in the new humanity of Jesus Christ. Under Christ, we are one. Look over to chapter 4, verses 4 and 6 of Ephesians. He says there that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See, man, that there, the, the Gentiles, you all, having been brought near, having been the object of God's promises, right? You might not have been the one that God gave the promises to, but you, believe it or not, are the object of God's promises. He says, I'm going to give Christ and Christ's gospel is going to go to the ends of the world and gather in all the Gentiles so that we would be one body, heirs of all that is God's. So you Christians, how does it feel to be adopted as an heir? Maybe you feel a bit tentative. Maybe you think that you are forever guests in his house. So you tiptoe around the promises of God, not knowing whether or not you should claim them or not. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm talking about legit biblical promises. His grace to be present. Christ to be with us. His strength to strengthen us sanctification, a hope for holiness, a preservation and perseverance all by His grace, salvation in Jesus Christ, adoption, being a recipient of all God's promises. Do you tiptoe around these promises and the offered grace? Should I touch this or not? Am I supposed to be here? Or maybe you might be like the first century Jews. Maybe you make other people feel like through your own treatment of them, that they are forever guests. Don't touch that grace. It might not be for you. If you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, no matter your social background, no matter how much money you have, no matter if you are, again, male or female, no matter what country you come from, no matter what your bloodline is, God has made you an heir to His riches, adopted you into His family, and given you every single privilege as a genuine citizen of his heavenly people. Forget saying that I got the blood, the same DNA, the bloodline of Jesus. I got Jesus' spirit living in us as he incorporates us in. You cannot get any more in than that, being unified and united to Christ through his death and resurrection. In Christ, the doors of salvation are flung wide open. Salvation is for the ends of the earth. And this was God's intention from eternity past. God's intention was that one from Abraham's line would be a blessing to the nations fulfilled in Christ. And in our scripture passage that we read earlier, that Paul read for us, God's intention was that the Gentiles would stream to Christ in his kingdom, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it is his divine plan that you, Christian would be included in his new humanity, built upon the solid foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And though the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached 2,000 years ago and the foundation laid, we today are connected by that same life-giving gospel 
And we herald that same life-giving gospel, salvation from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the church is ultimately built on Christ Jesus, he says, the cornerstone. How awesome is it that we today, as his church, get the privilege of seeing other people. Did you notice there? It continues to grow. We get the privilege of bringing this gospel to the ends of the earth. And then seeing people added there. They're joined together to be one new humanity. Where we walk amongst the earth as God's people. Displaying Christ's character to a watching world. To conclude, let me speak to you again if you're visiting with us. Did you know that even today the doors of salvation are still open? Did you notice there in verse 21 that the structure joined to Jesus Christ still is growing? It's not that the doors of God's riches in Christ are closed, but that they are still open. Where those hostile to God because of sin can still be forgiven and saved. Not treated as prisoners, but sons. And beloved daughters. Through Christ, sinners go from alienation, having no kingdom privileges, to having every single kingdom privilege. Through Christ, we go from being ostracized people, hostile to our maker and hostile towards other people, to adopted children of God, where every door in his house is open to you. Though we were far, now we have been brought near through Christ our peace. Reconciliation on this plane and reconciliation, most importantly, to God. You two can, friends, can know this peace by repenting of your sin and believing in Christ, who earned for all those who would repent and believe peace. No more hostility, but only the very love of the Father and love to our neighbor. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood, which is the vehicle, so to speak, that brings us near. We thank you, Lord, that the hostility we have, you remove all by your grace. Lord, we know that if it were up to our own hearts, we could not be righteous. We are not righteous. So, Lord, we thank you that you pacify our sinful hearts, which are hostile towards you and hostile towards other people, and you bring peace. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that your peace will be made known amongst us. Lord, we know that peace does not come easy, and so we are commanded to pursue peace, even in the book of Ephesians. Lord, we pray that every opportunity we have to disagree, to hold a grudge, to sin against others, to not forgive, or to forgive. Or that we would see these all as wonderful, marvelous opportunities where the power, the supernatural power of the gospel could be made known again. So Lord, where we are tempted in that one moment to be harsh, to be bitter, to be angry, and to hate. Lord, we pray that your peace would come to our mind. Lord, we ask that your spirit would make us mindful of this great and marvelous peace that you alone have won for us and we would love with the same intention and purposes, the same vigor as Jesus Christ. Lord, adjust our love 
to the love of Jesus Christ. And we pray that first Baptist would be a marvelous display of how you take hostile people and make us one for your glory and how you reconcile us to the Father through your spilled blood. In your name we pray. Amen.